In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Most sacred heart of Jesus, Immaculate Heart of Mary, St. Pius V, St. Pius X, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. So welcome back to our continuing series of talks here. Uh, We concluded our series of conferences on Vatican II last May, and I mentioned to you how the Second Vatican Council came to an inglorious end on December 8, 1965. And in no little time did Paul VI, the arch-modernist, and his modernist horde of prelates and theologians in the wake in the Vatican and and outside of the Vatican, they set about implementing the changes called for by Vatican II. Now, my first thoughts on how to proceed with this conference or this series of conferences I'm going to begin tonight were to list and cite various moto proprios and apostolic constitutions and official letters of instruction that were issued by Paul VI in chronological order. But then as I began to think about that a little further, it was so overwhelming and tedious. As I was researching, I came across an article in the National Catholic Register newspaper dated October 8, 2012. The article is, was titled, What Changed at Vatican II? As I say, the article was written in October of 2012. It was written and published to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the opening of Vatican II on October 11th, 1962. I would like to read to you an excerpt from this article. It opens with these words. Things changed with the Second Vatican Council. No one disputes, however, that the Catholic faith remained what it has always been. Because the church still teaches, and I'm quoting the article here, the church still teaches what the church has always taught. But the council did not assemble 2,860 bishops to recite the catechism. The fact that the bishops commissioned the first authoritative catechism in 350 years was just one of many changes initiated at Vatican II. Now, first of all, take note in the opening words of this article commemorating the 50th anniversary of the opening of Vatican II. It opens with the same constant theme that I told you last year that John the 23rd and Paul the 6th proclaimed over and over before Vatican II, during Vatican II, after Vatican II. The teachings of the faith, they said in so many words, will not be changed. The sacraments the divinely revealed dogmas of the faith, sacred scripture, the interpretation of scripture, everything's going to remain the same, unchanged. The only thing, if you recall, I said, what John the 23rd had said in his opening speech, the only thing we're going to change, he said, 
was how we, uh, how we uh, uh, preach the faith, how we teach it, how we present it to the faithful. But the substance, he said, of divinely revealed dogmas in the Catholic Church, the whole thing, the deposit of faith, I called it, they said it will not be changed, it will be unchanged. The article thus opens with a repeat of the lie, the deception, that John the 23rd, Paul the 6th, and other modernists have stated. No one disputes, the article says, that the Catholic faith remained what it always was. In fact, after I read this, I proceeded to uh, look at a number of news articles that were written at this time to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Vatican II, and almost all of them had the same reoccurring theme. Some changes were made, but nothing was changed in regard to the substance of faith and morals at Vatican II. I have this picture here of Heinrich Himmler. Heinrich Himmler was Adolf Hitler's right-hand man. And he once said, if we tell a lie long enough, the people will believe it. And the modernists and others duped by them have been telling the lie now for over 50 years. And the church did not change the substance of her teachings and morals. Only the presentation and the methods and the practice were changed. So that everything is basically the same. I want to share with you now some excerpts from a personal letter to demonstrate to you that in the short years that followed Vatican II, there was a change to the substance of faith and morals. This is a personal letter written November 7th, 1974, to Bishop Walter P. Kellenberg, the Diocese of Rockville Center. He's the diocesan bishop for Rockville Center, the diocese in which we are in right now. This letter was written by a young Father Clarence Kelly, who had just begun offering the traditional mass in his brother Pat's garage, which had been turned into a chapel. He wrote Bishop Kellenberg this letter in response to one of the priests of the Diocese of Rockville Center who was attacking uh, the chapel, St. Pius V Chapel. And in this letter, the then Father Kelly records, says to Bishop Kellenberg, the changes which you have implemented in this diocese show a substantial deviation from the unchangeable Catholic faith proclaimed by the Council of Trent. A clear-cut proof of this is the unacceptability of the Tridentine faith at Immaculate Conception Seminary in Huntington. Yet, that Tridentine faith, that is the faith, the Tridentine faith, we mean the faith that was taught at the Council of Trent. And Father Kelly, Bishop Kelly says, the Tridentine faith is the very one and all that Catholics are obliged to profess. Indeed, he then says to Bishop Kellenberg, it is the faith that you were ordained and consecrated to uphold and the one that you have sworn before God to defend. And Bishop Kelly wrote this, and he enumerates then 
after he talks to Bishop Kellenberg about the modernism that is rampant in the Diocese of Rockville Center. Obviously, a modernism that was rampant throughout the world, but he was just addressing Rockville Center. He then gives Bishop Kellenberg numerous examples that he recorded from Immaculate Conception Seminary of what was being taught to the future priests of the diocese. He has a dated and he has the professor of theology's name after it. And again, I'm sharing this with you to demonstrate that in a few short years, the substance of faith was changed. Here's what Father Julian Miller, who was a professor of dogmatic theology, taught on March 8, 1971. There is no fixed moral standard. That is, there is no moral law that we have to adhere to. This is the message of the gospel. Father Julian Miller again, March 8, 1971. Christ did not know how victory would come. Father William Marin, professor of sacred scripture at Immaculate Conception Seminary in Huntington, March 10th, 1971. Original sin is not something we get from the outside, but we get it when we sin personally. That's heretical. That's heretical. Okay. Father Miller again, March 19th, 1971. Jesus didn't necessarily see what would be the result of his death on the cross. Father Miller, March 24th, 1971. The devil is not a person. He's a personification of evil. And you know, just recently, I think I just mentioned to someone here, the Superior General of the Jesuit Order in Rome recently stated the devil is not a person. It's just a myth. But the devil we call the devil is just the evil in the world. Father Miller, April 5th, 1971. Death, judgment, heaven, and hell are not things in the future and a world to come, but they are here and now. Father Miller, on April 7th, 1971, we can never say that Jesus instituted a church while he was alive. And then speaking of the church's reaction to modernism under St. Pius X, Father Miller said it was a type of McCarthyism. McCarthyism, referring to Senator Joseph McCarthy of the 1950s, who was getting the communists out of the United States government. Father, uh, Father Regan, who was the professor of moral theology, Father uh, Dennis Regan, on April 7th, 1971, he said, if a psychiatrist recommends adultery as a cure for marital problems, we have to think about this. I am open in this area and not closed to possibilities. 1971, the professor of moral theology trained in Rome taught them that if a psychiatrist recommended adultery, he's open to the possibility of it. Adultery, of course, is intrinsically evil. And this priest was open to it. This is 1971, almost 50 years ago. He also talked about a number of other mortal sins against purity that I'm not going to utter here. 
But he was open to the possibility of these things no longer being mortal sin. And that was all in 1971. Bishop Kelly told me that Bishop Kellenberg never responded to this letter. How could he? When he was just shown the heresy and the sin and scandal that was being taught in his seminary. Well, we began last year our series of conferences on modernism. And as I explained to you, if you understand modernism, if you understand a modernist, if you know the gist of the heresy of modernism, these things don't shock you in the sense that you know these priests are modernists. Remember I told you a modernist is not a liberal as opposed to a conservative. A modernist is not a Catholic. It's really that simple. We then talked about Vatican II. We saw the leaders of Vatican II, especially John XXIII, Paul VI, and various bishops and theologians who were dedicated modernists, and how the whole purpose of Vatican II was to implement modernism. It was to use the visible institutions of the Catholic Church to spread the heresy of modernism. And this they did at Vatican II, as I showed you in the 17, I'm sorry, the 16 documents of Vatican II, which are, if you will, the charter, the constitution of a new church that emerged in the wake of Vatican II. And I tried to get across that anyone who would preserve the one true Catholic faith cannot have dealings with modernists who occupy the so-called positions of authority in this new church. Vatican II, simply put, was called to spread modernism. And we begin then tonight this third conference in this series of conferences, and I'm titling these conferences The Wake of Vatican II. Now, the 2012 article in the National Catholic Register, after declaring that the faith did not change after the Council, it then goes on to list, after saying nothing substantially changed, but it then gives a list of very significant, they say, significant changes in the wake of Vatican II. They give seven topics. One, the sacred liturgy. Two, ecumenism. Three, democracy and religious liberty. The fourth significant change was the relation with the Jews. The fifth was relation with other religions. The sixth was the religious life. All the changes they were going to make in religious orders and congregations to bring them up to date with the modern world. I think we talked about that last spring. They brought the religious congregations up to date with the modern world by destroying them. They took off the religious habit. Nuns did not have to live at the convent anymore. They could put makeup on and they could be like your uh, regular laywoman. And they destroyed the religious life. And the last topic was canon law. Now, I have already made comments on most of these topics when we went through some of the documents on Vatican II. In this conference, I'm going to uh, address basically three things. This series of conferences. Remember, for me, I'm very comprehensive. So this 
conference called the Wake of Vatican II. We could be here till next April <laughs> talking about some of these things. Uh, but the three things I'm going to particularly talk about are going to be the changes that were made in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Because that's the big one. That's the big one that your, your lay person, your ordinary commonly, that's the first thing that hit them is when they went to church on Sunday. Something was different. The second thing I'm going to talk about that your common, ordinary, and that's not a derogatory term, just the common, ordinary lay person was not really aware of was the change in the rite of Episcopal consecration, which took place in 1968. I'm going to talk about how they changed the words that Pius XII infallibly declared were the words necessary to validly consecrate a priest, a bishop, and how that was changed. So as to cast a shadow of doubt on bishops consecrated since that was made. Sometimes in our communion announcement we make on Sunday, Sometimes, I know in some of the chapels, I have recently said that one must make a confession to a priest ordained in the traditional rites of the church. And that means a priest has to be ordained before 1968, because it was after that that the priests, the rite of ordination and the rite of Episcopal consecration were changed. And that's the third thing I'm going to touch on, is the change in the right of ordaining priests. But the, the discussion on the holy sacrifice of the Mass is going to be the chief part of this uh, discussion here. To understand, however, to understand, however, how serious were the changes that were made in the Mass. You first have to understand, you first have to truly appreciate what the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass is. You have to, in other words, believe and take to heart the truth that the Mass is a true sacrifice. Not a memorial meal, but a true sacrifice. A sacrifice, you have a priest, a victim, and an altar. And the Mass is a true sacrifice in the real sense of the word. And every validly ordained priest sharing in the divine priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ he is empowered, empowered by God through the sacrament of holy orders to offer this sacrifice to God. The Catholic priest, in that sense, is the most powerful person in the world. Because he has a power that is divine. And by that I mean he can offer the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That is, by this divine power, he can, by using sacred words, the words of consecration, he changes the substance of bread into the body of Christ and the substance of wine into the blood of Christ, really and truly. And you know, this change of the whole substance of the bread into the body of Christ and this change of the whole substance of the wine into the blood of Christ is called transubstantiation. That's a very important word. This term, transubstantiation, 
was first used by 12th century scholastic theologians. It was officially adopted by the Council of Trent and her infallible teaching when the Council declared that the consecration of the bread and of the wine, I'm sorry, by the consecration of the bread and of the wine, a conversion is made of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. Which conversion the council taught is by the Holy Catholic Church suitably and properly called transubstantiation. This is an infallible statement from the Council of Trent. In fact, the 16th century Spanish theologian named Francisco Suarez, he said of this word transubstantiation, he said if anyone rejects that term as inappropriate or insufficient, they would be foolhardy and even offensive, even as they would incur the suspicion of heresy. Interesting to note, 1966, Bishop Kelly, I should say a young Clarence Kelly, is at a Franciscan novitiate house. You know, he started in the Franciscan order in 1964. He soon left that, and then he joined the Diocese of Rockville Center. But he's in the, the Franciscan novitiate house in 1966. They had a priest from the local diocese come and give a talk. And he was talking about the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And he told these young Franciscan novices, future priests, he said, we're not going to use the word transubstantiation anymore. He says, we have a new word. And this is the new word he gave them, transignification. Transignification. Remember what I told you. Remember what I told you. John the 23rd repeatedly said, Paul the 6th, others, we're not going to change the teaching of the church. We're only going to change how we present it. But because they're modernists, when you change how you present something, you, can, you change the substance of it. You change the meaning of it. We have a new word here, transsignification. In fact, Bishop Kelly told me that he approached this priest after the talk, and he said, why? Why wouldn't you just use transubstantiation? The priest said, well, you know, people couldn't understand transubstantiation. He said, transsignification they can understand that. So Bishop Kelly, now he's just a novice. He's like a second year Franciscan. And he asked the priest, well, what does transsignification mean? And he said, he said he'll never forget. The priest was, hmm, well, he hemmed and hawed as he was trying to make up a definition for it. That's 1966. That's one year after Vatican II ended. Less than a year. Less than a year. Front page. National Catholic Register. September 29th, October 12th, 2019. Eucharistic wake-up call. Do you know what this means? They have what they're calling a crisis with the Eucharist. Here's the crisis. 
I forgot to bring my reading glasses. According to the Pew Research Center survey, which is a reliable poll, it's like the Gallup poll, it's one of the more reliable polls that's taken in the country. The Pew Research Center survey recently surveyed seven out of ten people who identify themselves as Catholic do not believe that the bread and wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. Seven out of ten is 70%. Then it goes on to say, Pew's survey also found that among Catholics who regularly attend Mass, that is the new Mass, once a week, those who regularly go once a week, 63% don't know what is the church's teaching on the Holy Eucharist. 14% flat out reject it. Those are weekly novus ordos, if I could use that expression. And 23% didn't know what to say. However, it said 75% of Catholics who attend monthly or yearly, right, 75% of Catholics who go maybe once a month or once a year, you know, Christmas time because the whole family's decided to go, 80%, oh, I'm sorry, the 75% uh, believe the Eucharist is a mere symbol And 87% of Catholics who hardly go to Mass every few years, 87% believe as well it's a symbol, it's a supper. And now they're going on here, what happened? What happened here? What happened? Well, it's what I'm going to say in my talk here, but I'll say it now. Repetition is the mother of study, but what happened was this. You change the way somebody worships, you change what they believe. You change the terminology, you represent things in new ways, you change the substance of faith. So they have all kinds of problems now. They're wondering, some of them, who still believe. How are we going to fix this? I read an article by Monsignor Charles Pope, who's from the Diocese of Washington, D.C. He's, he's calling it one of the greatest crises the church has faced. Right? And Monsignor Pope is saying there's two things that maybe we have to consider here. He says we have to admit that when we changed the Mass, when we brought in the new mass, and we put the tabernacle off to the side, we kind of, he said, we might have we made a mistake when we did that. Or he said, our catechists and our teachers are not well instructed enough to teach this. We don't have to have a think tank to figure out what happened here. They destroyed that faith. They destroyed it. Now, maybe a Monsignor Charles Pope, maybe the author of that article, maybe they're not personally like modernists, given to modernism. But those who made the changes at Vatican II, those who implemented all that, they knew exactly what they were doing. This was all planned. The holy sacrifice of the Mass, the holy sacrifice of the Mass is the same as the sacrifice of the cross. And we believe, as Catholics have believed from the dawn of Christianity, that in the Holy Eucharist, our Lord Jesus Christ is really and truly present as the Catechism of the Council of Trent says, his very bones and sinews are present in the Eucharist. 
The Council of Trent also said that in the sacrifice of the Mass, Christ's sacrifice on the cross is made present. Its memory is celebrated and its saving power is applied. The sacrifice of the Mass, then, and the cross are the same. Insofar as it is the same sacrifice, the cross offered in a bloody manner, once and for all, with a real separation of Christ's body and blood. But in the Mass, the sacrifice is offered in an unbloody manner, with a real but mystical separation of the body and blood of Christ that is accomplished and the double consecration. So great is the Mass that St. Alphonsus de Liguori once wrote that God himself cannot cause an action to be performed which is holier and grander than the Mass. Now I've Mention this to you so that you can appreciate and understand, take to heart, what the Mass is. And not only, of course, strive to attend it with the utmost attention and devotion, but understand as well why, why the devil would target the Mass through modernism. Because if you understand what the Mass is, you understand why the modernists had to change it. They could not leave it. As I've mentioned, if one has the goal to change the Catholic religion, and their goal was to change the Catholic religion, they had to change the Mass. They had to substitute something in its place. And what they substituted in its place was nothing more than an imitation of a Protestant supper service. Some of you remember Father Roy Randolph. I've mentioned his name before. He died in 1988. He was offering Mass with our priests in the Society of St. Pius V for a number of years. Father Randolph had been a convert from Anglicanism. He was an Anglican priest. And Father Randolph said, when he joined the Catholic Church in 1960, he then went to Rome. And there in Rome, he, went, he was attending what's called the Beta College. The Beta College is named for St. Bede the Venerable, who was an English saint of the 8th century. And the Beta College was set up by Pius IX for converts from Anglicanism to become Catholic priests. Father Randolph was there, and when he heard all the talk of the council and what they were going to do, he left the Beta College. He went off to South America. And he left because he said, I don't want to become an Anglican again. This sounds like Anglicanism. And he even said that at the time, the High Anglican Church, remember the Anglican Church, you have the High Anglican Church, you have the Low Church. The Low Church is very, they call themselves liberals. You don't have to even believe in God to be in good standing in the Low Church. And the High Church, they still have maybe a holy picture. They even have uh, holy water. And they say the words, Agnus Dei, in their liturgy. He said at that time, in the wake of Vatican II, there were some high Anglican church services that looked more Catholic than the new Mass. But if you can understand what the Mass is, you can understand why they would change it. And just as Martin Luther and his uh, associates were very successful in changing the faith of millions of German people, So the modernists have been successful in changing the faith of tens of millions of people. The most effective change they made, 
the most effective change they made in order to rope in the faithful was the Mass. What is interesting to note is that the modernists followed, as it were, the methods that 16th century Protestants did to impose the new religion on the Catholic people. And it's what I said, if you want to effectively change the objective truths and dogmas which people believe and hold sacred, you need a concrete and practical means. And this concrete and practical means was the Mass. The eminent theologian and liturgist, Father Nicholas Gere, wrote, he said, there is no point of external life in which the truths of faith are more directly and more distinctly revealed to the faithful than in the liturgy of the church. No point, he said. No point of the external life of the church in which the truths of our faith are more directly and more distinctly revealed to the faithful than in the liturgy of the church. By these words he means the divinely revealed truths of our faith are clearly expressed in the rites and ceremonies of the church. And this is proved by the immortal words of Pope St. Celestine I, who died in the year 432, and who said, Legem credendi lex statuit supplicandi. In English, that means the law of praying establishes or sets the law of believing. And what this means in the practical order is that the liturgical form of prayer becomes the standard of faith. How you pray is how you will believe. If you change the way people worship, you will change what they believe. You will change the standard of faith. If you change the standard of faith, you've changed the religion. Martin Luther understood this. He used his attack on the mass to change the faith of the German people. He was very successful with that. He was very successful with that. But he also had a few German nobility who protected him from the emperor. But he changed the way the German people worshipped. The modernists understood this. Remember, they were not careless people. Modernists are not careless. They are very clever. They are usually highly intelligent. And in a certain sense, they are patient. I sometimes say, uh, the devil, so to speak, has one virtue. Patience. He will wait a long time. He will lay traps and snares for a long time to ensnare some soul. I say so to speak because he really doesn't have any virtue. But so it was for many years that modernists targeted the whole, targeted the holy sacrifice of the mass. You know, think about this. And some of you, um, I don't want to point you out, but you were there. You remember when these changes began. 
It was for years. It wasn't just at Vatican II that things started. The modernists knew that they could not just one day present the Novus Ordo Missae and go from one Sunday with the the one true Mass, and then the next Sunday we have the Novus Ordo Missae, they knew they couldn't do that. There would have been such a backlash. My mother told me, um, I don't know if I shared this with you, but um, at the local parish, it was about, it was like 1967, 1968, even before the new Mass officially came in, they brought in a guitar group and they started playing the folk guitars and even the tambourines. And when this started, she said, she knew something's wrong here. As I say, my, my mom left the parish about 1970. But she knew something was wrong. And so as they're playing the guitars and they're singing like kumbaya or something like that and tambourines are going, but people started grumbling. People were upset. The priest who was sitting off to the side, they've all, they had already instituted that idea of the priest goes to sit down now. Because he's not the sacrificing priest. He's the president of the assembly. They're already trying to get that in. He's the president of the assembly. So while that was going on, and he's looking out, he sees people getting very upset. Not just one or two. The whole church is starting to grumble. He gets up. He goes to the, the altar. He kisses the altar as we do at Mass. He turns around as we do at Mass, and he sings out as loud as he could, Dominus Bobisco. And the whole church, she said, erupted in Etcum Spiritu Tuho. And the Qatars stopped. And she said they weren't there the following week. The people weren't ready yet. They were not ready. It's a very delicate matter to change a man's beliefs. To change his faith. It's a very delicate situation to change how someone publicly worships God. Such things are sacrosanct. And hence, the modernists knew they did. Overall, they knew they needed to proceed with a certain caution and care. And I have to tell you, they were really, in those 1960s, even before Vatican II, they were already working on the priests. They were going after the priests already. They were trying to make them ripe for Vatican II. But they needed to test the waters. As I say, they couldn't just implement the Novus Ordo Missae. And at this particular church where my parents went, they couldn't even get the guitars in. The first time they brought the guitar in, it was rejected. But for the whole change in the Mass, they had to prepare bishops and priests in order to receive the new Mass. And, you know, um, this preparation officially, if you will, began in 1948. I know we're jumping back here. We are going to go back to 1948. We're going to go back through the 1950s again to look at it from a liturgical point of view. Because in 1948, a commission for liturgical reform was set up in Rome. It was set up by Pope Pius XII. The commission was headed by a Father Ferdinando Giuseppe Antonelli, a Franciscan priest. He was the general director of the commission. And he had a secretary. 
And the secretary's name was Father Anibale Bugnini. And these are the two men who would eventually compose the Novus Ordo Misae. I would like to just give a little background on Antonelli. He was born in 1896. He died in 1993, the ripe old age of 97. He was a Franciscan. He was ordained a priest in 1922. He taught at the Pontifical University in Rome. From 1928 to 1965. As I mentioned, he was appointed to be the head of this liturgical commission in 1948. Now, you may ask, well, what was the purpose of the liturgical commission of 1948? Why did Pius XII establish this? And it was established because there was a call for some reforms in the liturgy. Well, Antonelli was invited by John XXIII to attend Vatican II, and he was given the title of expert on the liturgy. He was appointed Secretary of the Sacred Congregation of Rites in 1965 by Paul VI. The Congregation of Rites, remember I explained to you last year sometime, the Roman congregations are those congregations through which the Pope governs the whole church. You have the Congregation of Rites, which oversees all the liturgical rites for the Mass and the, the administration of sacraments throughout the whole world. Paul VI consecrated him a bishop and named him the secretary, the head of the Congregation of Rites in 1965. During Vatican II, Antonelli kept a personal diary, which, has, which was published. And some of the notes he recorded during Vatican II when he was drawing up the document on the sacred liturgy. You remember the first document of the 16? Is the document on the sacred liturgy calling for a change in the liturgy. One thing in particular that Antonelli noted in 1964 was we have to change the rites, R-I-T-E-S. We have to make changes in the rites of the Mass. And here are some of the changes in 1964 that he scribbled in his diary that they were going to change. Here's one of the things he wrote down. The numerous genuflections and the many signs of the cross must be eliminated. What does that mean, the numerous genuflections? You attend the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. Note how many times the priest genuflects at the altar. Genuflects when he comes in, and then he genuflects during the Nicene Creed when it is said. And he genuflects the consecration. If you notice, and I'm getting a little bit off here, but... When the priest offers Mass, when he consecrates the host, as soon as he consecrates the host, he genuflects. Then he raises the host. He puts it down and he genuflects again. He does the same thing with the precious blood. One of the changes in the new Mass was they eliminated the first genuflection. After the priest, so-called priest, consecrates the so-called body of Christ, he doesn't immediately genuflect. He holds it up. He holds that host up. Then he does a genuflection. 
In the traditional Mass, the true Mass, every time the priest takes the pall, the square card off the top of the, con- the chalice with the consecrated blood, he genuflects every time. Antonelli said that had to go. You know why it had to go? Because Protestants found it offensive. The sign of the cross, that had to go too many times. Think about how many times you make the sign of the cross at Mass. At the beginning of Mass, before the Confidior is prayed, at the introit of the Mass, the gospel over your, on your forehead, your lips and your heart, at the end of the Gloria, the end of the Nicene Creed, etc. Antonelli said these things had to be eliminated. And he, he also said, what of all the signs of the cross made during the Mass, the ones he found the most offensive was when the celebrant, and you may not notice this, when the celebrant, after the, the first prayer the priest prays, after the consecration of the precious blood, in that prayer, at the end of that prayer, he makes the sign of the cross three times over both the precious blood and the sacred host, And then one over the sacred host and one over the precious blood. Five times there. The priest makes the sign of the cross over the body and blood of Christ truly, really present on the altar. Antonelli said, that has to be abolished. How can the priest, quote unquote, bless God? Do you ever notice that in the Mass? The priest makes the sign of the cross. Now, Antonelli said, we can't understand. No one can understand why the priest would do that. Do you know who the first person to protest that was? Martin Luther. He's the first one to complain about the priest blessing God. He called it a blasphemy. So I read that in Antonelli's diary, the remarks there recorded, and I looked over towards my bookshelf, and there I have uh, many of the works of St. Alphonsus de Liguori. And I have the book, The Holy Eucharist. And in the beginning, if you've never read St. Alphonsus's book, The Holy Eucharist, I heartily recommend you read that book. In the beginning of that book, St. Alphonsus gives a commentary on all the parts of the Mass, an explanation, a very short and simple explanation of the Mass, which I believe would give you a greater appreciation. But I took that book off the shelf, and I opened it up to his explanation, and St. Alphonsus explains why the celebrant blesses the body and blood of Christ. These are his words. While pronouncing these words, meaning the words of the prayer and the canon of the Mass, the priest blesses the host and the chalice with the sign of the cross. On this subject, Luther turns to ridicule the Roman church by asking how the priest blesses Jesus Christ, how the creature blesses the Creator. St. Alphonsus then goes on to explain what Pope Innocent III, who was Pope from the year 1200 to 1215, and what St. Thomas Aquinas say as to why the celebrant makes the sign of the cross over the body and blood of Christ. St. Thomas said that after the consecration, the priest does not make the sign of the cross to bless. He's not making the sign of the cross to bless. He's making the sign of the cross, St. Thomas says, to remind us of the power of the cross and of the death of our Lord that is made present in a real and true manner, but in an unbloody manner in the Mass. Antonelli wanted that abolished. 
And when we look at the whole thing, why would he want it abolished? Of course, well, he's a modernist. That goes without saying. But if they're going to make the Mass into a Protestant supper service, you have to get rid of any reference, any reference to the true body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ present on the altar and his death made present. If you're going to make it a memorial supper service, all of that has to go. That's our introduction to Father Ferdinando Antonelli. And next month, we'll pick up with Father Anibali Bugnini.